Okay, here we go. Ah, get the Bible here. We're going to read Psalm 119, verse 105. And that says, that's a nun, which is, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, I pray, the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgments. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. Okay, we have a few things. Uh, the Colvins, Jack and Beth, I got an email today that they both have something wrong. One of them, they're both going to be in the hospital at one point or another this week. And she even said, I think her thing is going to be on Sunday. So they're not going to be here on Sunday. And uh, so that's the Colvins. And then Miss Magnuson is um, in the hospital. I, uh, she went in last week, had a heart problem. And on Saturday night, she had a heart attack at the hospital. And the guy that normally is never there, he says, I'm never on call. I'm never here, you know, on these hours. He just happened to be there. And he was able to put three stents in there right away. And she's better. Monday was a tough day, but uh, she's better. And she's going to the Pines, right where we do mission work. She'll be there starting maybe by now. Before 6 o'clock, they're going to take her to the Pines. So keep her in prayer. She's going to be there at least for a couple of weeks, and she's going to have to wear uh, a suit instead of putting in a, a you know a pacemaker. It's a suit that if something doesn't work properly, it'll zap her. And so it's some technology to keep you just in case your heart stops. Is that new? I don't know if it's new or not, but it's it's it, to because she's gone through so many surgeries, they don't want to do more by putting in a pacemaker. Miss Magnuson. Oh, Magnuson, yeah. And then we have um, Darla is still out; she hasn't been able to come in weeks and weeks and weeks. Oh. Darla, and then Freda emailed me this morning; she has a tooth emergency, and so she won't be here. So um, all these people are in need of prayer, big prayer. And uh, I'm I, I know there's other people online that have sent me emails and. I did not write them down. It's been such a hectic couple of days, but that's the situation. And Laura, just so you know, Miss Magnuson is leaving the hospital today and she's going to be at the Pines right by where we do mission work. Yeah. So she'll be there as of tomorrow morning or tonight, but tomorrow morning, if you want to visit or anytime Saturday, whenever. So we got that. And um, before we pray, I'll hold these up and I'll do this again on Sunday. If nobody emails me, I got some Dell. Dell printer cartridges, they're number 21 color and number 21 black. So if you have a Dell computer or a Dell printer and you want these, I got three or four sets of them, I will mail them to you. Somebody mailed them to me and I don't have a need for Dell cartridges. So send me an email, save you some money, and then uh, I'll mail them out to you. Okay, and then a couple weeks ago, uh, somebody sent me this book, Judaism, Strange Gods, and uh, Tom went to read it and he couldn't figure out what the guy was talking about. So he gave it back to me just now. But I did get a report that the person that wrote this book, uh, and I didn't endorse it. I was just saying somebody sent it and I was thanking them. But whoever wrote this book apparently is an anti-Semite. And so it probably has that type of a bent. So I, I won't read any book that's written by an anti-Semite. No. But um, there you go with that. I don't know, uh, uh, you know if, if somebody else wants to read it, they're more than welcome to. But if, uh, 
you know, I, I well, now that I have the book back, I can check out the name Michael Hoffman. And if in fact that's true, I won't read it because I won't read a book by somebody that's anti-Semitic or you know a Holocaust denier or anything like that. But anyway, um, we'll go on with uh, prayer. Heavenly Father, wow, we thank you so much for the chance to just be here in your presence and to pray for these people we mentioned, and also Elaine, who's traveling, just came to mind. We want to uh, pray for a happy time for her for the next few weeks. And thank you, Lord, for the people that are here tonight that were able to make it and the people that are online. And we would pray for each and every one of them. And especially if there's somebody with uh, problems, we have some people that have some anxiety problems right now, some difficulties with things going on in their life. And uh, we've got other people that are having some financial issues. And so, Lord, you know these people, you know uh, what they need. We have a missionary that has some uh, uh, prayer requests. And so we'd add them, that person in as well. And you know these people, Lord. You know uh, all of the needs, and you know all of our needs individually. And we just lift them up to you. We ask that you respond according to your great wisdom. We also ask that you bless this time together in your word, and that uh, your word would be handled properly. And I would pray that anybody that listens, that hears something that they think, well, that doesn't sound right, that they would check it out and not just assume that uh, I'm an authority on it, but uh, rather that uh, I'm just a guy that is trying to evaluate your word according to what I believe is proper. Lord, thank you for this time here, and we commit it to you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we are. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians, chapter 9. We got Jim here with us, but we spell it different. Yeah. S-U-S-A-N. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, S-U, would you like to read the verses over there? You're sitting there? No. Okay, well, then that's all right. I Yeah, she doesn't even have her Bible open yet. She's got it on her phone. Oh, she's got it on her phone. Well, her phone's in her pocketbook, so. Yeah. Okay, well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14 is where we're at. So let me get there really quickly. And are we going to back up? it? No, that's the beginning of a new cha uh, paragraph. So here we go. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Anybody? No. Certainly not, he says. That's right. Okay, here are our comments on that. Paul has made a logical and orderly defense concerning the rights of those who minister to others in spiritual matters. He even reached back to the law, both from a spiritual application and concerning those who serve in the temple and those who serve at the altar. Jordan? Yes. First Corinthians 9, 14? Oh, I read not Romans 9. I'm sorry. I, I thank I you for having me in the right book. you must have a different version. Yeah, no, okay, let me read that again. Uh, boy, thank you. I, I just turned to the wrong book. Okay, sorry everybody online, they're over there panicking, and so, um, okay, I'm going to back that up to verse 11 then, 9-11. You know, I do things like that, I've got no brain, you wait till you hear what I say on the Prophecy Update this Sunday, you want to know somebody that does stupid things, you wait, because I did something really stupid last week. Anyway, um, we'll start at verse 11, 9-11, 1 Corinthians, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? And he says in verse 14, Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Remember, Paul didn't partake of the things that he could have, and we've been talking about that. Well, he says here very plainly, even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. 
Paul has made a logical and orderly defense concerning the rights of those who minister to others in spiritual matters. He even reached back to the law, both from a spiritual application and concerning those who serve in the temple, and then he says, as in the previous verse, those who serve at the altar. In a final in and unambiguous defense, he notes that the Lord himself has commanded, Paul's words, that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Although the gospel, which was preached during the Lord's earthly ministry, lacked a knowledge of the church age, for both those he commissioned to teach it as well as those who heard it, it was still a preaching of the gospel. Though the disciples at that time expected the gospel to be immediately realized as one of an earthly kingdom, something he corrected them on in Acts 1, 6 through 8, there was nonetheless the gospel proclamation. At that time, he gave these instructions to the 12 apostles. This is back in Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 5 whenever we get there. Matthew chapter 10, and in verse 5, he says, um, oh, one more page. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. But... Go rather to the lost house, sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bags for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So there you go. That's even at the time when Jesus was ministering in Israel, he expected people to take care of the ministers of the gospel. His words, the worker is worth his keep, indicates that these men were to be cared for during their travels as they carried this good news to the people of Israel. Based on this, Along with all of his other supporting thoughts, it was clearly evident that Paul and all who preach the gospel are to be given the same support as they minister to others. Paul's reference to the Lord has commanded implies that the words were already being circulated among believers. In other words, there were probably copies of these words that we just read from Matthew already out among the people. If not, then he would have most likely said something like, as Peter informed me, the Lord is commanded, because he wasn't in or a disciple of Jesus at the time those things were saying. So you see the logic, the Gospels were already written, or he wouldn't have been able to say that. He would have said, well, I've been told this, okay? The fact that he left the source out of his letter implies that the Gospel narrative was already known to those in Corinth. It is an attestation of a very early date for the writing of the Gospel record, which if you read liberal scholars, what do they do? They try to push the uh, dates of the Gospels and the New Testament epistles to late in the first century, maybe even into the second century. And by doing that, they say that there's been time for error to come in and for doubt to come in and people to make up stories. And all, they, they come up with every reason to tear the Bible apart. Well, that wouldn't be possible if we know that Paul wrote these before he died, obviously, and he died in the 60s. And he's citing the Gospels. That means that the Gospels predate whatever date he's writing it. So it takes it back easily to the 30s right? Because it's already been circulated as far as Corinth. 
Okay, so you see the logic there. Don't listen to liberal scholars. If you read these crummy analysis of these people, they do the, you want to know some people that'll pay a high price as the Jesus seminar. They, those are some of the most liberal people. You go onto their website and they give you a little test about uh, the New Testament, you know, where was Jesus born? And anybody answer that question? Bethlehem, you're wrong, according to the Jesus seminar. No, he was, he was a Nazarene. That was a, a tale. He was born in Bethlehem, that's not true. And they do this with the whole New Testament and they've come down to about three or four verses in the gospels. They say, these are original of Jesus and all the rest is just made up stuff. Absolutely criminal people. They forgot about the trip to Egypt. Yeah, they forgot about all of that. Now they just ignore it. They're just terrible people. Anyway, don't read that kind of stuff. It just infects you and then it causes doubts and it just, it'll it take away your, your it'll raise your blood pressure. That's a fact. <laughs> anyway, um, so we, we know of a very early dating for the gospel record. We know because Paul wrote these and we know when Paul died. So don't listen to these crazy people. Finally, for this verse, Paul notes that preachers, as he says, should receive their living from the gospel. In essence, he is equating the gospel with the altar of his previous thoughts in the verse we just read. The work of the temple only prefigured the work, the greater work of Christ. Thus we see this. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 13 and read you this. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, which we're almost, I finished the uh, writing the commentary about five days ago, and we are almost, almost done with publishing the last one. It'll be about four more days, I think, and we'll have Hebrews and it'll be online. Anybody wants to read it, you can read the whole book right online. But Hebrews 13 and we have uh, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. And then verse 14, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. So that's a little bit of a different application, but it, he's equating the altar with what they did or the giving to the ministers with what they did at the altar. Now, I, I said this very recently. <laughs> it's not been a long time ago. If you watch the sermons, maybe you can answer this. It says here, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. What sacrifice or offering is that pointing to? Yes, but from the Old Testament symbolism. We did it not too long ago. Very recent sermon. The red, the red heifer. Remember I said that's the only offering or sacrifice where it was burned with the blood. All of the others, the blood was, the animal was slaughtered in the temple area. They drained the blood and then they either sprinkled it or they splashed it depending on what they were doing. And then they, some of them had their bodies taken outside and burnt. Some of them were burnt on the altar entirely. Some of them parts were burned on the altar and parts were eaten by the priests, etc. There's all kinds of different things that happen. Every single aspect of every one of those sacrifices and offerings to the very finest detail points to Jesus. Every one of them. He did all of those different things in his work, but specifically the red heifer was taken outside the camp 
and then he was slaughtered, not at the altar, and he was burned with the blood. So when you read that in Hebrews 13, always remember that that red heifer is what is being referred to there. And if you don't know the symbolism, if you missed the sermon, go watch it. It is a marvelous two sermons. You want to uh, watch, uh, I think it's uh, Numbers chapter 19, if I remember. Anyway, two sermons to get through it. Marvelous, marvelous pictures of Christ. Anyway, little plug for those sermons. Okay, so um, life application. Remember as you go to your talking about good sermons. Sunday, the standard of the Lord. Marvelous pictures. Oh, I just can't believe it. Just wonderful pictures of Jesus. It is the bronze serpent on the pole. Marvelous stuff. When the enemy commences like a flood, or to hold up like Standard against him. Hold a standard I, I against him. About or well, I haven't heard that one, but it sounds like a good song. I'll have to find no, it. No, it's, it's Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I cite that in the uh, in the uh, sermon. So you're going to get a double shot of that. And it, hope, yes. What was the name of that serpent? Uh, Nechoshet, I think. Uh, wait, ne ne Nahash. Nahash was the name of it which means unclean thing. Nehoshet means bronze, okay? But it was specifically bronze. called Nahash. And that was, anybody remember what happened to it? Finally, something happened to it. Well, they worshiped the it. They worshiped yeah, it, and so King Hezekiah destroyed it. Yeah, to keep it from being worshiped, absolutely. There you go. Okay, life application. Great sermon this weekend. Um, remember as you go to your respective place of worship that your pastor is entitled to certain benefits and honors. If faithful in his proclamation of the gospel, which includes the whole counsel of God, then don't be timid to do, you know, I hate reading this because, but anyway, I'm going to read it and just think of whatever uh, pastor or whatever church letters. you belong to. Send your um, letters to Charlie. Yeah, Not yeah. postcards, letters. <laughs> Quiet down, Burke. Um, which includes the whole counsel of God. Then don't be timid to do something <laughs> special for him from time to time. In many ways, serving as a pastor can be a brutal job, and I can testify to that. Um, people get angry and leave for petty reasons, and this will cut the metal of the toughest man eventually. So let him know you support him as long as he continues to present the Bible in a careful and God-honoring way. Okay? Anyway, I type these things. Some of these commentaries go back from before I was ever ordained. And so these ones were done, again, after I was ordained. But the prayers and the life applications and stuff, I just reused from my original commentaries years ago. didn't so. do nothing to you, verified God's calling. Well, there you go. Anyway, I, okay. <laughs> okay, 915 here is where we're going on to. Um, but I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. Okay, this is Paul's words. He's talking about the giving of or helping of the pastor or the minister in the church. And he's saying, I have done none of these things. Okay, for the past 14 verses, Paul has continued or clearly and methodically defended his apostleship and then his right to compensation for the conducting of the duties of that office. This right was one granted even by the Lord himself. We just read that a moment ago. However, he now introduces a new direction concerning this by stating, but in contradistinction to what he has clearly laid out, he says, I, meaning Paul, I have used none of these things. This is not in defiance of the Lord, but in support of the cause of the Lord's church. All the rights and privileges that should be associated with the exercise of his office have been turned down by him. 
He will explain this directly in this verse and for the next three verses, and then he will divide that explanation into two separate reasons. One, his serving of men to impress upon them the gospel of Christ, which is verses 19 through 23, and then two, his desire to run the race and receive the prize which is set before him, which is verses 24 through 27. So, in order to lay the foundation for those things, he continues with his thoughts by saying, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. In other words, it is as if he were saying, though I am entitled to these benefits, and as of yet have not received them, the letter is not to get you to recognize, recognize this and correct it. Instead, his words are twofold. First, that they recognize his apostleship is valid, which he's been talking about, and which he has done already in his letter, and secondly, to understand why he has not accepted the rights that go along with the position and why he will continue to not accept those privileges. And we're going to see all of that as we continue. And to show the absolute determination concerning his resolve in this matter, he finishes this particular verse with, For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. To him, the impartation of the gospel was the most important aspect of his life. He had been called out of darkness and into light directly by the Lord. He had received the highest measure of God's grace, and he felt that to accept payment for such a wondrous gift would be worse than death. And if his life was sharing the gospel, then death would mean that he could no longer share the gospel, something he earnestly desired to do. It is the strongest assertion possible that his motives were focused only on the sharing of what he had been bestowed. And so what did he do? He sat there on his off time and he made tents, okay? He worked with his hands so that he wouldn't be a burden to the church. Life application, people do certain things because they love to do them. We will pay large amounts of money to go mountain skiing, adventuring in the African safari, or to go on an ocean cruise. Who would expect to be paid for doing those things? Doesn't make any sense. Paul's passion was sharing the gospel, and so he was willing to share it without payment. And each person who truly loves Christ should likewise feel the desire and hunger to help in some way in this endeavor. Local missionary work, helping keep the church, or even just carrying around tracks to hand out after dinner at a restaurant are ways of spreading the message. What value is Christ to you? And are you showing it to others in self-sacrificing ways? Everybody has to answer that for themselves. I know a person sitting in this room right now that has done missionary work every Saturday for the past 12 years, and he's missed four weekends out of 12 years, and that's only because he had to go visit his family for certain reasons in Ohio. That's serving the Lord, and that's what he does. Four weekends in 12 years. Sick? Doesn't matter. He's out there. Rain? He's out there. We've had storms. We've had cold. We've had heat. We've done it on every single holiday that has fallen on a weekend or a Saturday in the past 12 years, we've been out there. Christmas, we've been out there a couple Christmases. We've been out there on New Year's. We've been out there never on Thanksgiving. I wonder why. Thursday. Oh, that's a Thursday. Okay. <laughs> anyway, we've never missed one. In all of those years, 12 years, that's his gospel. Indiana, by the way. Oh, Indiana. Did I say Ohio? Yes, I, I do that all the time. I get Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio always wrong. I, I'm always saying that. Anyway, thank you for correcting me again. 916. Um, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach 
the gospel. Who does he sound like when he says that? Jeremiah. Okay, we're going to get to that. You're right, though. In his previous words, Paul tied the very continuance of his life in with the preaching of the gospel. He does this elsewhere as well. In Philippians chapter 1, he wrote that there were two paths ahead of him. He does this, uh, I'm sorry, uh, one was to depart and be with Christ, meaning he would die. And the second was that he would remain and continue preaching the gospel and teaching those he was a minister to. Let me take you there to uh, what Philippians chapter 1, and we'll see what he actually says. It's uh, Philippians 1, verse 23. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which we were just talking about just a couple hours ago, maybe an hour ago, which is the far the better, what Paul says, in which we agree. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all of your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Well, I'm just like Paul. It would I far prefer to be with Christ right now. But until he calls me home, here I sit. Okay? If his life was literally tied to the performance of his gospel preaching, then how could he boast in preaching? One cannot boast in taking breaths. One cannot boast in the beating of the heart. And one cannot boast in the need to eat food. These are necessary things for the continuance of the person. Likewise, Paul could not boast in the preaching of the gospel. It was to him simply a necessity. And Jeremiah, as Burke pointed out, felt the exact same burden. Here's what it says in Jeremiah chapter 20. He says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, speaking of the Lord, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. He had to speak the word of the Lord. It was in him like a fire, and it was going to consume him if he didn't speak it, and so he continued to speak it. Jeremiah could not hold back what he was impelled to do without dying. If he were to hold back from food, he would die. Likewise, if he held back from speaking out the word of the Lord, his end would come. This is what Paul felt as well. As he says, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. As this was so, then how could he boast in his efforts in the gospel? The very thing that sustained his life. Rather, he had a boast in the gospel itself, not in his conveyance of it. This is stated explicitly where? Burke, his boast was explicitly stated uh, in uh, Galatians, isn't it? Uh, yes. God forbid that I should glory. There it is, Galatians six fourteen. But God forbid that I should boast. I love to check with Burke. I always keep him on the spot, and then Mom goes into tears because she's angry. She can't remember the Bible like Burke does. Don't worry, nobody can. I can't. <laughs> anyway, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the word world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Yeah, if I didn't have the notes in front of me, I'd be searching all day for these. That's why I go to Burke. Anyway, um, life application. If you've been called by Christ, then you have a calling in Christ. Everybody got that? Has everybody here been called by Christ? Any hands going up that they haven't? No. So if you've had, if you've been called by Christ, then you have a calling in Christ. The two go hand in hand. What are you going to do about it? The question is, have you allowed that calling to take root? A plant can only survive if it receives the nourishment it derives through its roots. 
and even if it survives, the amount it flourishes is derived externally as well. You got soil, water, sun, pruning, and so on, all determine the health of the plant. Are you using your external sources properly? The Bible, prayer, fellowship, and so on. Determine today to let nothing hinder you in developing your calling in Christ. And as we've said, I mean, it's back in Romans, so it's been a while, but there are certain things that everybody's been called to. You've got, you might not be a, an apostle, you might not be a minister, you might not be whatever, but everybody has some gift. You've got a gift of administration, you've got a gift of giving, you've got a gift of uh, serving. There's all kinds of things. And so you just go to the gifts that are laid out in Romans in, in the books of uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and something will show up that you say, you know what, I can actually do that. And as I said, we got people in this church, this very small church, that there's four of us that faithfully go out every single Saturday. I don't go as much because I'm always getting called to do something, but uh, I mean, we're out there every Saturday. And then we got people that come from up north that attend the church during the winter, and they're out there every single Saturday. So that's their calling. We've all got something we can do for the Lord. If you have a calling from Christ, then you need to live in your calling from Christ. Okay, verse 917. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. In his previous comment, Paul said, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Therefore, this verse now follows logically from that. If necessity is laid upon him, meaning if he is compelled by a force he could not contain, then no reward should be expected. As he says, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. Suppose he wasn't compelled to preach, but rather did it of his own free will. In such a case, he could expect a reward. When he showed up in a town such as Corinth, whatever pay they offered would be this reward and it would be his just due. However, this is not the case with him, and so he enters the word, but. The portion, this portion will explain the position he's actually in, which is, if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. Using a hypothetical, which is what applies to him, he shows that if one is under constraint to do something, they have been given a directive, which is their obligation to fulfill. In this sense, he is likening himself to a bond servant. Everybody got that? You're a bond servant. Somebody tells you to do something, you go do it. You don't expect pay. As uh, Jesus said in that one parable, he says, uh, the master comes home, the bond servant's been working all day. The master says, I'm hungry. He says, he doesn't go and fix his own dinner. He goes and fixes his master's dinner. And I know I misquoted that, but that's what goes on. A bond servant is under an obligation. And this is what Paul is saying. It says um, uh, he's under an obligation to do something. They have been given a directive, which is their obligation to fulfill. In this sense, he is likening himself to a bondservant, a term he specifically refers to himself as elsewhere. A bondservant is told what to do, and he does it. No pay is expected for such services. Rather, the reward merely rests in pleasing the master of the house. Like the bondservant, Paul's efforts in the gospel ministry were not expected to be paid for, okay, but to fulfill an obligation that he was bound under. The reward is not from the work, but from the approval of the one who assigns the work. His approval and his reward is found in Christ, not in what he can gain from proclaiming Christ. And it's unfortunate that that seems to be what most of 
you know, it happens in Christianity today is that the reward comes from proclaiming Christ instead of serving Christ. Okay. And it, it, don't get me wrong. There is a need for people to make enough to support themselves because if they can't support themselves, then they can't continue on preaching or whatever else. But it seems like that is an end in and of itself is to get that reward and not to proclaim Christ. And that's, that's a sad place to be. Life application. The more freedom one has realized in Christ, the more indebted to Christ the person must naturally feel. Paul's freedom from persecuting the church led him to an attitude of complete servitude to Christ. Some are freed from alcohol, some from drugs or murder or prostitution. Everyone will feel a different level of gratitude and willingness to return to the Lord a measure of appreciation. The question for each is, how much do I feel I have gained in being saved by Christ. The level of appreciation should be reflected in the level of willing return to the Lord without the thought of receiving something for the effort put forth. Okay, I will show you something that happened today. I'm not going to give you any more details on what it is, but this came in the mail. There is no return address on it. Okay, all it says is um, uh, 830 Main Avenue, uh, st Main Street, uh, Bull, Idaho. And I looked it up and guess what that is? That's the post office. So they put something in here and they sent me something uh, just thanking me. And their words were, thank you for delivering me from tithing because they've been taught tithing their whole life and they were so thankful they just sent a note. Okay, so there you go. And that is somebody that with no name, no return address or anything, just wanted to thank me Thank you. You delivered me from tithing. And I thought, what a wonderful thing. Because you know my heart, man. When I, I hear those tithing verses and I start my hair standing up, I, I get angry about it because it's not something that we're supposed to be doing. Okay, that's fine if people do it, if they don't understand that it's a part of the law and it shouldn't be done. But once you get that and you know that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, just preach grace. Preach grace because that is where God's heart is, is the grace of Jesus Christ. Not earning his favor by doing a certain amount of giving or a certain whatever. Okay, so that just touched my heart when I read that today. Anyway, um, we're in 918 now. What is my reward then? Good question. He's talking about not getting anything out of it. So what's his reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. This is an apostle of Jesus Christ. They have been told that they may earn their living from the apostolic ministry. And he says, no, my reward, I'll read it again, that when I preach the gospel, I may pre present the gospel of Christ without any charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. This is a man who is totally sold out to Jesus. And it should be so. Remember, he was delivered from the things he did in Acts chapter, you know, six through eight. And then in Acts chapter nine, he saw the risen Lord. And three days he had to sit there blind, wondering what is going to be my end. And as I said in a sermon recently, he probably thought that his fate was worse than Korah's. He's going to be cast into a pit somewhere. And instead, the Lord healed him and set him about the gospel business. This is a guy that knew deliverance. Paul noted already that necessity was laid upon him to preach the gospel and that he had no expectation of a reward of compensation from those he preached to. However, this doesn't mean that there was no reward at all in his preaching. And so he asks, 
What is my reward then? There's always a reward for fulfilling one's duties, always. Even if it doesn't seem like a reward, that is your reward. If a person has a job and he fulfills his duties, what does he get? Paycheck. Paycheck, that's right. He will receive wages for doing that job. This morning, I was thinking about when I first started working at CSTQ Utilities. It was in high school. Dad got me the job. He knew some people, and he says, uh, I'm going to get you into wastewater. And I went in there, and I was making $2.15 an hour, and I was so grateful. I couldn't believe how much money I was making. I, it was fantastic, right? That's uh, over $80 a week, and then, of course, the government takes 72 back, but whatever. You're, I was very grateful for that, and uh, so uh, that was my reward. I got a paycheck for doing that. Anyways, I had other jobs. I worked at restaurants and stuff, but that was like 70 cents an hour or something. I mean, that was nothing. And so when I got this job, $2.15 an hour, and then eventually it went up to two fifty, and I thought I was, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was a giant pay raise. Anyway, so there you go. Um, and where was I? Wages. Okay, however, if he is a slave, he won't receive any wages. Nevertheless, he has a reward. If he has a harsh master and he fails to do his work, the master will punish him. Now, he'll beat him good and hard. His reward then is doing his job is to simply not be beaten. It is a reward. If he has a kind master who will never beat him, he will still lose his reward if he fails to work. It will be whatever punishment the master decides upon him. Okay, but being a kind and gentle master, when the slave does his job, the reward may be a smile, a thumbs up, or a thank you. Though none are required, they are a reward in and of themselves. But there is also a reward of merely doing the job because it is a job that slaves love. Okay, he loves his master. He loves the type of work he is doing, and he loves that it gets done. The satisfaction is in the doing. This is Paul's reward, as he says, that's that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. Because he has necessity laid upon him, he followed through with that which impelled him, and he found satisfaction in that. Had he asked for or received any wages for his work, then it would mean that he was being rewarded for something that he had to do. In this, there would be a taking advantage of his rights in a way which he felt was inappropriate. Instead, he refused this right, as he says, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Life application. If you are employed and have set wages and benefits which you regularly receive, then you are receiving what you agreed on when you took the job. If you are offered something from an outside contract contractor to help you make up your mind about something which would affect the company you worked for, then you would be abusing your position within your company. And that happened a lot in the wastewater business. You go in there and it's time to get a new contract for sodium aluminate, right? And you got this guy that delivers it for 85 cents a gallon. And this guy says, I'll deliver it to you for 86 cents a gallon, but I'll give you some money on the side or I'll buy you a trip down to the Bahamas. I mean, this happens all the time. These people are in a cutthroat business. They're delivering chemicals or they're delivering whatever. They're hauling sludge. You got a couple sludge haulers in Sarasota and it's got to go somewhere. And so they'll compete and maybe they'll come and they'll say, well, I'll offer you a little something and, you know, we'll just keep it under the table. It's tempting, but then you're abusing your position, okay? Paul stood fast on the gospel. If he received something for his preaching, then others could claim that they had an influence on his doctrine whether it was true or not. 
Others are always evaluating our actions, and we are asked to be upright in our dealings with those who come we come in contact with. This is an expectation of the follower of Christ, through and through. We're to deal fairly, we're to deal honestly, and that's the way that we are to deal in all ways and at all times. I have somebody that I'm related to, I won't say who it is, but it was years ago here in Sarasota, and he uh, was doing his work and you know he was on several boards here in Sarasota and one of the people says this guy would make a good commissioner of Sarasota and so they came to him because they're the builders they got the big money in Sarasota and they said uh, we want you to run for the county commission and he said wow that sounds pretty good and then he said well, I can't do it I don't have any way I, I have no money to run for the county commission and they said don't worry about that we'll take care of that all you need to do is run and he went home that night very excited and he lay there in bed and he said by the time i got out of bed the next morning he said i can't do it because i'm not going to be a bought man if i take their money in order to take my seat on the commission i'm going to have to do what they want me to do and not what is right and i've always remembered that lesson thank you dad i said i wouldn't say who it was but when he told me that i had a real new respect for my father after that yeah. Anyway, he, he just was a man of integrity. He still is. I mean, he's still alive, but I'm talking about at that time, he was a man of integrity. And uh, it's something that, uh, uh, it, you know, you grow up in a situation like that and you see how your father acts. But when you hear something like that, it really, it really solidifies what you already know. Anyway, there you go. 919. For though I am a free man from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. Wow, you talk about an attitude, that's it right there. This is great stuff. The word for begins Paul's thought. It is then building upon his previous discussion. He said that he preached through necessity as one bound under a master and that his reward was solely in the preaching of the gospel. Hence, for shows an extra, extra weightiness in what he will now say. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all. Think of whatever person you can think of that has affected you in your spiritual walk that has actually made himself a servant to you. You appeal to him at a certain time of the day when he's doing something, he stops and he says, okay, let's get this resolved. Or you send him an email or you, you know, whatever. You, something happens in your life and you say, I need help with this. And he's willing to do that. This is what Paul is trying to do. He's saying, I am making myself a servant to all. It's something that I would wish that I could be like, because, you know, you get busy and you can't serve everybody all the time, but Paul was a servant to all. Okay, Paul had no person that he was bound to. He was a Roman citizen and thus free within the Roman society. He was also liberated from the bondage of the law by Christ and had no person over him in Jerusalem, meaning the high priest, meaning the Pharisees, meaning the Sadducees. Nobody was above him because he was freed from the bondage of the law. He was not accountable to the Sanhedrin or to the high priest. He had no boss over him. Instead, he made tents while working with his own hands, and he preached the gospel without recompense from those he preached it to. Thus, he was not bound to any person or group within the church. He was free from obligation to any and all humans as far as a society could consider a person. And yet, despite his exceptional freedoms, he willingly made himself, as he says, a servant to all. The word translated as servant is du dulo. Dulao, I'm sorry. 
dulao, and it is more appropriately to be rendered slave in this context. I have enslaved myself to all. What would be the reason for such a choice? Why would this man, free from all constraints, decide to treat everyone around him as a master to whom he was indebted? His reasons show a beautifully pure desire for that which freed him on the road to Damascus, that I might win the more, he says. The sole desire of Paul's life work and toil was to bring others to Christ. His refusal to accept payment was because he was showing his status as one who is actually a slave to Jesus Christ. In this position, he was thus allowing himself to be considered a slave to any and to all who might call on him, meaning calling on Jesus. It is the mark of a truly selfless individual who understood what it meant to be in Christ, both for himself and for those around him. Life application. To what extent are you willing to spread the gospel? Are you willing to give up on sleep in order to get up early and prepare for the day's battle? Are you willing to forego lunch if it means an opportunity to tell someone about your faith? Will you give up on payment for your efforts? Or will you even be willing to spend your own money out of your own pocket to share your faith? What is Christ worth to you? At one time, you were without him, but someone took the time to lead you to him. Now that right and privilege is yours. Don't squander it. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, even the beautiful earth, where man does trod. Also he made the rich and abundant sea, and all that is in each of them as well. He is the great and wondrous God of glory, as the wisdom of his creation does tell. He is the God who keeps truth forever, who executes judgment for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord to, the Lord to weary souls, he gives rest. Okay, verse 920. Let's see here. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law. Yes, that I might win those who are under the law. Let me read that again because it goes over two pages and my page is all crinkled and hard to read. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. This verse begins to explain his previous verse where he said, I have made myself a servant to all. He will defend this thought for three verses and give a summary in the fourth. As a servant to all, meaning Paul, what he's saying, he showed himself to the Jew as becoming a Jew. He did this as he says that I might win Jews. In the book of Philippians, he says this. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, he says... Though, well, let me go back to verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more, more, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. Let me go on a little bit concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Okay, so here he is, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Not only did he conduct himself in a way where he continued to live faithfully within his national heritage, but he did it as one who is obedient to the religious heritage of that national identity as well. 
There were many observant Jews in his time. They lived under the law of Moses and followed the edicts of those placed above them. Likewise, some of them lived within the strictest sects of the faith, as Pharisees or Sadducees. These people were those who considered by others as the epitome of righteousness within the society at that time. Regardless of whether this was actually the case, because Paul originally came from them, he had the ability to demonstrate his obedience to the law of Moses, while at the same time showing that it in no way conflicted in his faith in Christ. Unlike Paul, Peter, who was actually unfaithful to the real principles of freedom in Christ while being an observant Jew, Paul was able to work within both realms without showing any contradiction or hypocrisy between the two. And how could he do this? He gave up his freedoms in order to be a servant to all. This is exactly what his previous many verses were leading up to, which concerned his true apostleship and the fact that though he deserved recompense for it, he didn't use that right. He was a man who meticulously fit his life into every category he could in order to win some to Christ. Everything he could do in any way possible to tell Jew or Gentile, Greek or whoever else, he would get in there and he would act in that way without violating any of his other you know, internal moral codes in order to do so. Now, when I said Peter failed at that, where is that recorded? Galatians chapter 2. That's exactly right. So here we go. We're going to go there really quickly just so people know what I'm talking about because I'm saying something in the commentary and I don't want to leave it uh, uh, lacking. So we're going to read Galatians 2 really quickly. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among those Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet, here it is, not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So Titus is a Gentile, and he stayed a Gentile. He never got circumcised. Okay, he goes on. He says, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Now, he just called these people false brethren. These are people that are saying, well, you need to observe the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised and do these things. If somebody today does that, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. If somebody says you need to observe the law of Moses, they are false brethren. I didn't say it. Paul said it. I don't need to worry about calling somebody a heretic because the Bible tells me who heretics are. When Jesus says, call no man a fool, right? If you call somebody a fool, you're in uh, danger of the fires of hell, right? He's already done it. We don't need to worry about it because it says in the uh, 14th Psalm, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So we don't need to worry about when we call somebody a fool if the Bible has already done it. It has given us the baseline already. Jesus is talking about arbitrarily calling persons fools. Okay, but here we are. A person who reintroduces the law of Moses that tells you you are not to eat pork or that you are to do this or you are to do that under the law of Moses is a false brother. They're reintroducing the Hebrew roots movement. It's poison. And it's right here. Let's go on. So he says that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. 
for those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw, he's talking about the leadership in Jerusalem, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcision was, circumcision was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. It's the same gospel, but they just went in and talked to different groups of people. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. One gospel. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Here it comes, verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Peter is sitting there, withdrawing himself from having fellowship with other Christians because of false brethren. He's already called them that. He's called them false brethren. They're reintroducing the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised. You need to observe Moses. Peter started to pull back because he didn't want to look like the bad guy. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy when he had just been given the right hand of fellowship. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, here it is. This is Paul's way of handling a situation. Yep. I said to Peter before them all, if you, before them all, he said it right in front of everybody, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Absolutely not. Or certainly not, he says. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Finally, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died for nothing, for nothing. So much for false brethren that tell you you need to do this or that or one thing or another under the law of Moses. Absolutely not. Don't be swayed by these people. Paul calls them false brethren, and that is what they are. Life application. In Paul's time, some Jews viewed themselves from a point of national identity. Others viewed themselves from a point of religious identity. This is still true today within the Jewish race. Just so you know, it's still true today. Do we have any Jewish friends in this church? Yes. Okay. And how does he identify himself? By national identity or by religious identity? Religious. By No. By national. If he's religious, then he'd be there observing the, the Talmud or the, see what I'm saying? You can either be, he's culturally and nationally assigned as a Jew, but he's not a religious Jew. You get the people in Tel Aviv. I mean, some of them are gay. 
They don't have anything to do with religious identity, but they are nationally identified. So you have two different things going on in the Jewish society. Some of them say, I'm a Jew culturally, but I'm also a Jew religiously. Sergio doesn't do that. He is a complete Jew religiously, okay? So there's a little bit of difference. He doesn't follow the, the Talmud. He doesn't follow the law of Moses. He follows Christ, okay? And we have other Jewish friends that we know as well. And they will either be Jews by religious identity, cultural identity, or both. But some are one, some are another, and there you go. Okay, so. I'm part, says Christ in me, so. What's that? I'm part. You're part, that's right. Christ in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory, that's true. Okay, so I'm going to read that again so you now understand what I'm saying. Paul has been addressing his willingness to spread the gospel to all classes of people in all ways. In the previous verse, he addressed those who lived as national Jews as himself being a national Jew. He also addressed those who lived under the law, meaning those who lived as religious Jews, as himself living as if he were under the law. At the same time, he now addresses those who are without law. This is a reference to the Gentile peoples of whom he is the apostle. In his apostleship, to them, he lived as without law. In other words, they are without the law of Moses, and he showed them that they were acceptable to Christ in that fashion. Paul notes that he so lived in that manner as well, though his words and, or I'm sorry, through his words and through his writings. It is Christ which makes you acceptable to God, not adhering to the precepts of the law. We just saw that with Peter. Peter was living as a Gentile. He was eating with the Gentiles. And then the false brethren come in and they say, oh, and Peter backs up and he says, oh, I'm not going to hang around with the Gentiles because I don't want to be the bad guy here. Okay. This is exactly what that passage is telling us. However, this is Paul. However, he then qualifies his statement by saying in a parenthetical thought that though not being without law towards God, but under law towards Christ, the law which he was under was God's law that reveals Christ. It is the understood law that man is infected with sin and that the only remedy to that problem is the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ is the embodiment of the law, having fulfilled it in our stead. When we place our trust in him, we should have the desire to fulfill the law of conscience, which is written on our hearts, and be observant to the moral laws which are ingrained in us. Paul notes this in the earlier chapters of Romans. No one can be absolutely without law and be pleasing to God. It's not possible. Therefore, we are not without law toward God because we are under law toward Christ. This law, which he observed, has now been revealed in the writings of the New Testament, especially in Paul's words, which are doctrine for the church. When we follow these guidelines, we are emulating what Christ would have for us because they are inspired words which have been given for this purpose. Paul lived this life that he mentions so that, as he says, I might win those who are without law. Once they were won to Christ by him, they could rightly be instructed in the law of Christ. Faith, through grace, saves. However, salvation implies being obedient to the one who has saved us. We are not without law in this regard. We do not have license to sin. The teaching that being in Christ means we have complete license to act as we wish is known as the antimonian error, and it is something that is warned against throughout Paul's writings. Antimonian means without law, completely without law. We can do whatever we want. We are in Christ, and we are free to do that, and that is not true, okay? We have to be 
observant to the law of Christ, and that is found in the Gospels. What I'm sorry, in the writings of the epistles. That is found in what directives we have been given in this dispensation. Having said that, 2 Corinthians 5.19, which I say almost every, ser every sermon and every um, Bible study, is something that everybody needs to remember. We are reconciled to God. God is not imputing our sins to us. So the fact is that we can sin against God. We do. When we violate what Paul writes in the New Testament, we sin against God. But that sin is not being imputed to us. Thank God for Jesus Christ. We are not under law. We are under grace. Okay, so there are two things going on. We are not to do these things. We are to be obedient. We are to adhere to God's law, which is found in Christ. But if we don't do that, we are not being imputed sin because of, because if we were, we would be cut off from God. The spiritual connection would be cut and we'd be right back to where Adam was. However, even though we're not being imputed sin, when we violate the law, which is given to us in the New Testament epistles, what is the result? Loss of rewards. Everybody here answered that. I don't know if you online did, but every person should remember that. If you are not obedient to the precepts and the commands and the things that we are given as prescriptive writings by Paul, then we will lose our rewards. Okay? That's, please don't forget that. We are not under law. We are under grace, but we are under God's law as far as the moral conduct of ourselves, which is laid out here. If we violate that, we will not be imputed sin, but we will lose rewards. That's how the, it works in this particular dispensation, okay? Life application. We are all slaves to something. If we are a slave to Christ, then we are free from sin's condemnation. However, we are not free from sin's consequences. If we live in sin, after being saved by Christ, we will suffer the consequences of our sin. Can anybody think of one of them that you would suffer? I'm not talking about rewards now. I'm talking about in this life. We're told to not do certain things, and we do it, and we suffer the consequences. Can you think of one of them? Jump off a building, you break your leg. Well, that's not a law. It doesn't say don't jump off well, a building, a but <laughs> it's a law of gravity. That's a true. I'm thinking of something like don't be a drunkard, right? If you're a drunkard after coming to Christ, you will suffer the consequences of those actions. I will tell you something. This brings something to mind right now. I, I, I might as well say it right now because I feel bad for this guy. And yet at the same time, I'm, I'm rather proud of him. I was at 7-Eleven a day ago and I was out picking up the garbage as I do. And I always stop and there's this one piece of concrete and it's in a planter. Okay. And the rocks get put up on the concrete and it causes people to kind of trip. And so every day I, I take my foot and I kick off the rocks and, you know, five minutes later it's back over there, but I do it every day. Okay. So I'm kicking these rocks off of this thing with a garbage bag hanging over my shoulder. And this guy, there was a, two guys and they were obviously, you know, homeless. Okay. And they're, I found out, I'll give you the whole story in a minute, but they're obviously homeless and I'm kicking these rocks off and he says, what are you doing, man? He used an expletive when he said that though. What the are you doing? And I looked at him, I, I said, I'm doing my job. I, say, I do this every day of my life, okay? And then he walks by and the other guy looks at me. I, I, I like shake my head. I'm like, it's obvious. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm cleaning the place up. Anyway, so this other guy kind of brushes it off and they go over there and sit and they start smoking and they have their uh, breakfast in a bottle. We see it every week at the projects, right? They, they got a big beer and he's drinking it, okay? And so 
Now I'm done. I clean everything, put up all the water and everything in front on the display because people knock all these water things over. It's just terrible. People. Anyway, so I'm all done with that. I walk back around with the garbage and I'm now at the dumpster and I'm separating all the recycles because I do that every day. I'm taking the recycles out of the dumpster and I'm separating. And this guy started talking to me. And finally, I said, well, where are you from? He says, well, I'm from Texas. So they walk from Texas. You know, they thumb their way. They've been walking and they're just they're just going from place to place. And and uh, uh, so we're talking a while, and one of them says something. I said, well, you know, I'm, I, I actually am a preacher. You know, I'm, I've got a little church over there. And uh, uh, he said, the guy that had been rude to me at first, okay, this is the guy. And I was, like, kind of upset at him because he's like, what do you do? You know, he's kind of vulgar. And I said, um, the first thing he said, I said, I'm a preacher, and, you know, i got a little church I preach at. He said, come pray for us. And I thought he was being a wise guy. You know, you just, I, I thought he was like being a jerk. Come pray for us, like that. And so I said, what? And he said, come pray for us. And I said, okay, I'm not going to turn down a prayer. So I walk over and I pray for him. And I said, I can see these guys have got a tough time and, you know, they, they, they need some direction and blah, blah. And I said the prayer and it took a couple minutes and the guy, this is the one that was rude to me at first and he's drinking his beer. And he says, the other guy, we'll just say his name's Mike. I don't know what it was. He says to Mike, he says, um, see, you need Jesus, man. And I said, well, yeah, I kind of, well, I didn't really say anything. I'm just like, I could see there was some conflict going on. And this guy, even though he's drunk, and like I said, he's not going to lose his salvation. He knows Jesus. He knows that he's doing wrong. He's stuck in a pit in his life right now. He's an alcoholic. He can't get out of it. Okay. But he is taking his time walking from Texas with this other guy telling him, you need Jesus. And this guy's, and I could see this had been going on for a while. And he started talking, I don't believe that. And, you know, he says, I've been telling you, if you don't receive Jesus, you're going to go to, and he's, he's pleading with them. He's almost in tears. And here I'm thinking, these are a couple of guys that just want to be rude to me. And so it, it was a good opportunity for me to stop and to talk to this guy about Jesus. And he did not want to hear about it. As a matter of fact, he started to walk away. And this guy, literally, he was like, uh, 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 he was begging, wait, I want to walk with you. I need to, it, it, he's, all he wanted to do was get this guy to know Jesus. Even though he's drunk, it, it doesn't that, I mean, it doesn't that, my, my hair's standing up thinking about that. Just think of that. We dismiss people like they're trash because they're vulgar or because they're having breakfast in a bottle. And we find out that they, they're miserable. They don't want to be where they're at and they just need direction. And this poor guy doesn't have anything. He's addicted to drinking. You know, we look at them though as their mic. Th yeah, that's right. Mic. That's right. We just walk away and say, "Oh, they're not worth the time," but they are. But I thought they were being belligerent at first, yeah. and so I'm like, I, I just don't want to argue with these guys. You know, I, I, I told them I'm a preacher. Maybe they have a question about Jesus, and the first thing he said it was so quick, I didn't get it the first time. Come pray with us, and I thought he was being rude. So never underestimate what people have gone through in their lives we we can't you know we we aren't them we don't know what their situation is but i get really upset when i hear people say well you can't be saved because listen people can be saved through a lot of different things and still not be living for the lord that's the point i'm making and it took a while to get there but i was really humbled after that because this guy was literally picking up his stuff and chasing after his friend saying come on just walk with me and about five minutes later i got in my truck and i drove around to water the plants out front and they were walking by and I said, be blessed, guys. And that one guy had his hand up and he's like, yes. I mean, he's struggling in life. He's having a tough life, but he's trying to get somebody else to know Jesus. So 
Uh, unbelievable. Okay. Um, once again, we're all slaves to something. I'll read this again. We, if we are slaves to Christ, then we are free from sin's condemnation. That guy sitting there may be drunk, but he is free from sin's condemnation. However, we are not free from sin's consequences. That guy is going to suffer until he puts away that bottle. He's going to suffer. I know somebody that was an alcoholic and he suffered, and now he's one of the finest Christians I know, but that's what happens. If we live in sin after being saved by Christ, we will suffer the consequences of our sin. And that guy is suffering it right now. But we have been given freedom to live for Christ. Use that freedom wisely and live in a manner which will glorify our Lord. That guy's trying. He's not doing very well with his own life, but he's trying for other people. I, was, I couldn't believe it. Here, in Christ I am freed from sin's condemnation. In Christ I've been saved through and through. But in Christ, I may still suffer tribulation. Think of that guy. This is something I should expect. I know it's true. How much more when I fail to properly heed the words and directions he has given for my life? If I act against his words in tongue and in deed, should I expect anything but trouble and strife? Rather, I will keep my nose deep in his word and then apply its precepts to my walk each day in grateful obedience to my gracious Lord. Yes, I will thankfully walk in his holy way. 922. Yes. One of the descriptive things there in that verse you read was yes. blameless. 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 And Job. Right. The Lord told Satan that Job was blameless. blameless. Uh, and Upright. Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless, blameless before the Lord. That's right. Now let me read you something. Okay. The Hebrew word for blameless is T-A-M-I-M. Tamim. Yeah, it's perfect. Okay. Okay. It's what a sacrifice would have to be. Indi indicates a person whose motives are are uh, pure and who lives as a good moral lives a good moral life. It does not mean perfect. That's right. It doesn't mean so perfect. I, 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 when you said that, because I always wondered about Job being blameless and then he's he blameless and upright. Goes off and then Elizabeth and. How could they be? Does that really mean that they had no sin or whatever? But no, they weren't sinless, but they I, I read were that blameless. From somebody, but they doesn't mean they're perfect if they're living according to all the knowledge that they have. Gotcha. Yeah. Absolutely. So good job. Good job. Okay, nine twenty-two. To the we got fifteen minutes or so. To the week I became as weak that I might win the week. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. So far, Paul, <laughs> excuse me, has shown himself to be accommodating to others who viewed their faith differently than he did. He has identified himself as a servant to all, as a Jew, as one under the law, as one uh, without the law, meaning the law of Moses, and thus implying a Gentile. He now, despite his vast knowledge of what it means to be a Christian, says that to the weak I became weak. This is certainly referring back to those he spoke of in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There, he referred to believers lacking proper knowledge on certain issues. An example of such a lack of knowledge might be eating pork. I love to bring that up because it's the most basic, simple thing that we can look at and say, that is proper for us, and yet people say you, you can't do it. It's, it's the most basic. So I always bring up the pork one. Plus, I love to eat pork chops. Okay, so um, when someone didn't eat, understand that eating pork was acceptable, he would have thrown it back in his face by having a pork chop in front of him. Whatever the person's weakness, he would have made himself like them. He explained the need for this in that chapter with these words, 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We just read this a couple weeks ago, verse 11, it says, And because of your knowledge, for the weak uh, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He took his role as an apostle seriously and meant to never harm someone who viewed their position before the Lord differently. This included those weak in the faith. And the reason for this was that I might win the weak. To him, having the superior knowledge was of less immediate importance than demonstrating love to the one lacking knowledge. We went through that for at least five verses in chapter 8. Love is more important towards a brother than your knowledge of the law, okay? That person could later be properly instructed and also grow in his knowledge if he wasn't first chased away by Paul's actions. Sometimes your knowledge is so great, you chase somebody away, and then they're never going to get discipled properly, okay? And so by having described several different categories of people, he sums up his accommodations by saying, I have become all things to all men. As long as it wasn't improper or harmful, Paul would work within the parameters he had been given as an apostle in order to bring others to faith or to build others up in their faith. All of this was done with the noble cause that I might by all means save some. This final thought is tagged on to show that his adjustments were for a right and noble purpose, not to simply be a man pleaser, something that he knew would lead very quickly to heresy. He even states this explicitly after speaking of exactly that scenario in Galatians chapter 1. Let me take you there really quickly. Galatians chapter 1. And he says there in verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. In all ways, Paul knew that the purity of the gospel was paramount. And yet within that purity, there was room for accommodation. He always attempted to find that right and untainted balance as he walked life through the life of his apostleship. Life application. Summing up his thoughts of the previous four, I'm sorry, life application. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. These words of Paul should be remembered by those who have the greater knowledge. In exercising love while instructing in right doctrine, the immature Christian will be built up in his faith and in his heart as well. Okay? Remember that. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. Okay, verse 923. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Okay, summing up his thoughts of the previous four verses, we read Paul's reflection on why he became all things to all men. He's already said that, he, that it was he that he might by all means save some. But for him, there's a wondrous bonus tied into that notion. By doing this for the gospel's sake, Paul knew that this would make him a partaker of it with those who heard and believed. Everything was about the fellowship of the believers with Paul. And isn't this the burden on our own hearts for those we love? Don't we longingly desire that the people we share our daily lives with will also share in heaven's glory with us? Paul looked even beyond his close associates and relatives and desired this for all men. 
He knew that he was once far off from the Lord and that only through his calling on the road to Damascus was his salvation possible. He looked for that same heartfelt conversion in others. Life application, as you pass by on the street, do you take the time to think that is a person created in God's image? Isn't it every person of equal value when it comes to sharing Jesus? Even our enemies can be changed. I noted that just a day ago, or was it? It was yesterday morning, not this morning, just a day ago. You know, I look at these guys, I'm angry at them for belittling me about doing my job, and then come to find out he's just a guy that's struggling with life. And it's just, you gotta, you, you gotta just keep thinking. And I know it's hard sometimes, but when you see somebody, you see a little Mexican walking down the road, or you see a big Slavic guy walking down the road, or you see a girl from Tahiti walking down the road, they're all created in God's image, every single one of them. They all are created in God's image and they all have the same life chance that we had. And hopefully they will take it if somebody will simply present it to them. Okay, isn't every person of equal value when it comes to sharing Jesus? Even our enemies can be changed. Try to have Paul's attitude and realize that sharing the good news is something we should do at all times with all people. And I know it's hard, I know it is, but once you get that past you, you find out that every person, every person out there has something that's going on in them that's screwed up. I, I, I don't care who it is. We all have something that's messed up in us. And some people are just so far from Jesus. And they're the ones that you think will never come to Christ. And they're the ones that seem to make the best converts when they come to Christ. You know, I was listening to, uh, what's the guy's name? He, uh, uh, oh boy, I can't remember. This is years ago. And uh, he has a, a prophecy thing on TV. And he was talking, he was in... Africa. He became the uh, president of Liberty University. Ed Heinsen. Okay, Ed Heinsen. He was in Africa doing an evangelistic uh, ministry for a while. And he went over and I guess he got invited and he was out there preaching. And he said there were all these people and he was preaching the gospel. And he said, there's this big guy over there with an AK-47. He's yeah. one of these, uh, you know, like mercenary guys. He's a uh, just a big guy. And he said, he was a little scared and he's preaching and this guy's over there and he said, of all the people that I would not have expected to come to Christ that day, this big guy with this AK-47 on there, they'd been probably out killing people in the bush, came forward in tears and received Christ. And he said, I never expected that. Everybody, everybody has got a possibility of being saved, even the guy with the AK-47. So there you go. Okay, verse uh, 924. Let's see here. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. In this verse, Paul moves from his thoughts concerning serving men in order to impress upon them the gospel of Christ, which was verses 19 through 23, to his desire to run the race and receive the prize set before him. That's verses 24 through 27. In this, he begins with, do you not know? This is a way of saying, you certainly know. The reference he will now make will be to the Isthmian Games, which took place on the Isthmus of Corinth. They were comparable to our modern Olympics and were something every person would be aware of. Everybody would know these things. In Ellicott's commentary for English readers, he describes these games. This is Ellicott's commentary. These, like the other games of Greece, the Olympian, Pythian, and Nemean, included every form of athletic exercise and stood on an entirely different footing from anything of the kind in modern times. For the Greek, these contests were great national and religious festivals. None but free men could enter the lists, and they only after they had 
and satisfied the appointed officers that they had for 10 months undergone the necessary preliminary training. For 30 days previous to the contest, the candidates had to attend the exercises at the gymnasium, and only after the fulfillment of these conditions were they allowed, when the time arrived, to contend in the site of assembled Greece. Proclamation was made of the name and country of every competitor by a herald. The victor was crowned with a garland of pine leaves or ivy. The family of the conqueror was honored by his victory, and when he returned to his native town, he would enter it through a breach in the walls. The object of this being to symbolize that for a town which was honored with such a citizen, no walls of defense were needful. This is the reference Paul is making. The athletes of his time and those of ours as well have the same end goal in common. They all run, but one receives the prize. There was only one victor's wreath then, and there is only one gold medal now. Those who are capable, well-trained, and endure the rigors of the race are the ones who win and receive the reward. Paul tells those in Corinth to act this way in their race to the finish. Writing to all, but with each individual in mind, he hints that each should run in such a way that you may obtain it. He will continue with his thoughts on this for three more verses, showing the necessity for each of us to train with rigor and to persevere in our steps all of our days as we look forward to the prize which awaits us. Life application, Paul's use of an athlete who strives to be the champion in the Isthmian Games is an excellent example for us. We can look at those who work towards the gold medal in the modern Olympic Games and understand what he's referring to. These people put out maximum effort for the thing they desired. If our desire is truly Christ, then we should be even more willing to put out all we can in order to please him. We have one short life in which to earn our heavenly rewards. Let us not squander it, but strive forward with our eyes firmly fixed on him. Yep, fixed on Jesus. I'm not going to do another one. It might take five minutes, and we only have five minutes, and I do not want to run over, because if we do, it'll cause my trouble. So we'll stop a couple minutes early. But... Great stuff. Paul's writings are simply wonderful. They give us so much hope and they give us so much direction. And these are simple verses, but they're filled with all kinds of wonderful stuff. And when Paul makes his writings, he'll often write about, you know, uh, metaphors like boxing the air and uh, being in a race or getting the wreath or he's using things that people of the times would understand. And so reading commentaries and understanding what he's talking about, we can make our own mental images of the same thing with the Olympians and whatever else that, you know, football stars or whatever, whatever turns you on. But for me, it's just Jesus. That's where we should be turned on is just Jesus. So let's thank him and go ahead and close. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus. He came before us. He ran the race which was set before him and he finished He's the leader and the champion of our faith and help us each to follow in his footsteps, no matter where it takes us. If we have to go up to the uh, cross of Calvary someday on our own, may we be willing to do so. And if we just follow him into an easy death and uh, a burial waiting the rapture, so be it. And if we're here at the day of the rapture, how wonderful that will be. But whatever it is, help us to be patient in our, our endurance and patient in our walk or our run towards that final goal. Help us to do this, Lord, because on our own, we're weak, we're, we're fallible, we're failing. The things we do are just often so far away from you. And we know that. So help us to make the right decisions and to stay close to you at all times. 
Thank you for this wonderful word you've given us. And thank you so much for the people that come and attend this class and those that are online. Then, Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What's that? I thought I heard her say amen. Amen.